please turn in your copies of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And it's been uh, several weeks since we've been in this epistle, so it's important that we refresh our minds with what we've already seen previously. This letter is written to Timothy, a young pastor in the church at Ephesus. And it's written as a divinely inspired manual for the operations of the church. We've seen instruction given to the leaders in the church. We've seen uh, instruction given to the men in the congregation as well as we saw the last time we were in this letter. Well, this letter is not simply written to Timothy or even to just those who are in leadership in the church. It is written for all of us for our instruction and for our edification. This morning we see that the Apostle Paul gives instruction to the women of the church as well. This may go against the grain of what modern Christianity has begun to espouse and it most certainly goes against the grain of what our culture espouses. But we must recognize that this is the Word of the Lord and it must be followed. And so with that in mind, give your attention to the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of the living and true God from 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Thus far, the reading of God's Word, let us ask His blessing upon it. O Lord, we once again come unto Thee in this time. Lord, we do ask Thy blessing would be upon the reading of Thy Word. This Word which so many in our culture fight against, this Word which even those within the church say is antiquated, is outdated. This Word which professing biblical scholars challenge its authenticity. 
Lord, we are thankful for this word which thou hast kept pure and preserved through all ages. O Lord, we ask that thou wouldst prepare our hearts for this word. Shut down any uh, preconceived notions that we may have. But Lord, simply feed us with thy truth. Lord, Thy Word is truth. Let what is preached today not be the opinion of the minister, but let it be the, the undeniable fact of the, of the Word of God. Lord, let the preaching not be in the enticing words of man's wisdom, but be in the demonstration of the Holy Spirit and of power. O oh Lord, cause Thy Spirit to apply these truths to our hearts. Even if we don't personally want it. Cause our hearts to be more conformed after Thy Word. O oh Lord, bless the preaching we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. Well, one thing that I've noticed in the news a lot recently is, has to do with uh, aspects of living out Christian values. Uh, the abortion debate continues to rage with the world being willfully ignorant of the humanity of the child that is within the womb. And we as a country are, are now well settled into that blasphemous Supreme Court ruling which allows for homosexuals to defile the gift of marriage by claiming that even they can reap the blessings of the covenant of marriage while they maintain their sodomite lifestyles. Third wave feminism has shown its true colors, declaring hatred among men and gender distinctions sometimes after uh, watching or reading the news it can feel incredibly discouraging sometimes I just want to cut off the TV or my phone or put down the newspaper and accept defeat it's in these moments that we need to be in the word looking to the Scriptures for how we are to continue. This is precisely what we're going to do today. So what does abortion and homosexuality and feminism have to do with why we're gathered here today? Well, many of the issues that we're facing as a nation and society today, especially those that I just mentioned, are rooted in a particular sin the absolute disregarding for the gender distinctions which God has given to men and women. So this is what we're going to look at today as we continue our study through 1 Timothy. And we must realize that these are not new issues that we have to try to find new solutions to. These are the same issues that Paul and the early church faced at the time of Paul's 
writing, there was a movement throughout the Roman Empire called the New Womanhood. It was a countercultural movement that sought to break the social norms of what womanhood looked like. And perhaps in this passage, Paul is addressing uh, this issue as it has begun to creep into the church. But more importantly, he's laying the universal principle for what godly womanhood is to be and how it is to be observed throughout all ages. Now before we dive any deeper into this text, I want to make it abundantly clear that men and women are of equal value and worth, both bearing the image of God and are worthy of respect. What we're going to look at today is not a diversity of value, but a diversity of duties or roles. So keep that in mind as we look back at our text starting at verse 9. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. This is one of those passages that we do have to take a step back and put aside any preconceived notions that we have and look at the objective truth of what's being spoken. First, Paul says that it's in the same manner in which he has addressed the men that he's now addressing the women. That's important. He's addressing them as members of Christ's church just as he did with the men. And his charge to the women here is for modesty. If there's anything our culture has completely done away with, it's modesty. Turn on the TV for five minutes and you'll see that this is true. We're surrounded by scantily clad men and women showing off their bodies, usually in order to sell some sort of product. We see gross sexuality on cable television and movies and all, all kinds of perversions are being normalized in our society. We have a problem. And Paul's solution is modesty. But it ought not be a self-righteous, proud modesty. He says that modesty must be done with shamefacedness and sobriety. This can only come from sincere humility and meekness. It's not something that should puff one up, but instead it should point to the Lord. Modesty is a huge issue in our own culture. We are extremely liberal when it comes to what women wear. Skin-tight clothes, low necklines, high hemlines, and short shorts. These are all the norm. This kind of clothing falls far short of the biblical ideal of modesty and self-control. 
So what is the biblical ideal of modesty? Paul goes on to describe what this modesty looks like. Not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. Now is Paul saying that you can't dress well? Well, of course not. What he is saying is that modesty isn't primarily a counter to sexual appearance. What he's getting at is at the heart of the matter, a person who is modest does not do things intentionally to bring notice to themselves. Calvin writes, he intended to uh, embrace the opportunity of correcting a vice to which women are almost always prone and which perhaps at Ephesus, being a city of vast wealth and extensive merchandise especially abounded, that vice is excessive eagerness and desire to be richly dressed. At the time in which Paul's writing this letter, the majority of Christians were poor and were persecuted. They could not afford to have these nice things, but there were some who were in the church who could, and they were flaunting it. These women were likely being held in high regard by some because of their adornment, and they were also likely being looked down upon by others because of their haughtiness. Sisters, you should not be asking, what makes me look most attractive? That's the wrong motivation. Instead, the question should be, what can I wear that best demonstrates a humble heart devoted to the worship of God? But this issue isn't found only in women. Men do this all the time as well. So why is Paul saying this directly addressing women? Well, it's because he's addressing one area in which a sin struggle is more prominent in women than in men. We must be sure to not be so short-sighted as to not recognize the natural tendencies of the sexes. There are sins that men struggle with more, and there are sins that women struggle with more. Both history and the Scriptures testify that this is one of those sins found more prominently in women than in men. And Paul is urging the women to be cautious of this. In the last part of the description of the modest woman gives us a beautiful picture of what she is. You know, not with uh, not with uh, uh, broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Friends, this is the matter of one may be dressed out uh, modestly outwardly or externally but internally she's a rebellious harlot where there is immodesty of the heart there will never be true modesty of the body 
The modest, godly woman ought not be adorned by the fancies of the world, but ought to be adorned with good works. Now these works are in no way to merit salvation. That was accomplished through the atoning death of Christ. But these works are evidences of one who is godly. This is the same teaching that we see in 1 Peter chapter 3. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may, uh, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of the plating of the hair and of wearing of gold, and of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Matthew Henry comments, good works are the best ornament. These are in the sight of God of great price. Those that profess godliness should in their dress, as well as in other things, act as becomes their profession, instead of laying out their money on fine clothes, they must lay it out in works of piety and charity, which are properly called good works. Men, this is what you ought to look for in a woman. Beauty may fade with time. We all grow old. And we no longer have the same vibrance and beauty of our youth. But godly works continue throughout the whole life. If a woman is adorned in good works, she will display those works in godliness all of her life. So Paul first addresses the adornment of women in his argument, but then he makes a turn and begins his exhortation for submission. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. This is one of the most hated and misunderstood passages in Scripture and the world uses it against us. We live in a feminist, egalitarian culture that uses this passage as a defense for their view that we as Christians hate women and do not respect them. Let me tell you right now, that is in no way what this passage is saying. So what does it mean that women are to learn in silence with all subjection? Does this mean that women are to never speak? Well, of course not. But there is a clear teaching that he is making known that women are to be learners of the Word in the church. In the public assemblies for worship, it is the woman's duty to silently learn, showing thereby a subjection 
to the man who is the head of woman. This is a reiteration of the teaching in 1 Corinthians 14 and verses 34 and 35. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for a woman to speak in the church. Paul goes on to explain this when he says that women are not to teach or to usurp authority over men. These are the, uh, are the conditions for the silence that is commanded by God. Women are not to teach men. I've encountered the argument that this suggests that women can never teach, but this is certainly not what Paul is teaching because it would be contrary to what he writes elsewhere. One teaching that women are commanded to do is found in Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Women teach in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, just as the men do when the congregation sings. And we also know from Timothy's mother Eunice and grandmother Lois that women are commended for teaching the children the ways of the Lord. Part of a woman's duty is to instruct children in the faith. And then we see in Titus 2 that Paul instructs women who are older in the faith to instruct women who are younger in the faith. This is an important responsibility that is given to women by our Lord. Please do not see this as a lesser role because the church relies heavily upon you women for this vital duty of instructing the younger generations. Paul goes on to explain further that it's not just teaching men that is forbidden, but any expression of exercising authority over men. Or as our authorized version that we've read says, usurping authority over men. We practice that the act of ordaining only we, we practice the act of only ordaining men to authoritative positions. Why do we do this? Why can only men be ordained in authoritative positions in the church? Is it because women are lesser than men? Well, we've discounted that assertion by stating that at the beginning, that men and women are equal in dignity and in value. Is it because men are smarter than women? Well, that's absurd because I can name numerous women who are leaps and bounds smarter than I or many other men. We hold this position because it's what the Word of God commands. Plain and simple. 
In fact, the word, uh, the phrase to usurp authority over men ought to bring us back to the fall in the Garden of Eden. One of the curses that was placed upon the woman for her sin in the garden was that her desire would be for her husband. Genesis 3.16 says, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrows and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. This means that one of the natural sinful desires in women is that they would uh, hold a place of authority over men. Paul isn't making a cultural argument here that women ought not be in authority. Instead, he goes back to the beginning and he uses the language of the curse to show that it is contrary to the perfect design that God had created for men and women. These distinctions being made between the roles of man and woman ought to be viewed not as a punishment but as a means by which God has given us the ability to ensure the right ordering of His church. These distinctions are not a result of the fall, but a reversal. Bringing the church back in line with that creation ordinance of man as the head of the woman. In fact, this is exactly the reason that Paul gives for this command. Let's continue in verse 13. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in transgression. Paul's appeal for the reason in these distinctions is found in creation. Nowhere does Paul mention culture or preference. His appeal is to the Word of God alone. And this is almost exactly the same thing that he does in 1 Corinthians 11 when speaking on this very topic. But in, in 1 Corinthians 11, he goes further and he appeals not only uh, to creation, but also to the Godhead and nature and the angels. But why is this important? Why, are his, why is his reasoning important? It's because what he appeals to as the reason for the distinctions between man and woman and the submission that is required by women transcends all times and cultures. There is absolutely no way anyone can read Paul's arguments either here or in 1 Corinthians or anywhere else this teaching is taught in Scripture and come away saying that he is making a cultural argument. It's not there. It was Adam that was made first, and then Eve. This appeal to the creation order testifies to the perfect design for women to be submissive to man. God created Eve out of man as a help meet for him. They were 
absolutely equal in dignity and value and were both image bearers of God. But that does not change the fact that man is the head of woman. Because of this, woman can never rightly exercise authority over man in the church. Because of this, woman ought to humbly submit herself to the authority and teaching of man. And flowing from this ought to be in-depth discussions on matters of faith that culminate in women teaching the faith to children and to other women. But the creation order is not the only appeal that Paul makes. He goes on to appeal to the very act of rebellion that plunged mankind into sin. It was not man who was deceived, but woman. Now there are two misconceptions that I want to address before we move any further. Paul is not saying that women are solely to blame for the fall. I've heard some people advocate for this and it's a disgusting position that stems from a heart of hatred. Adam was there with Eve. Adam did not guard his wife from the schemes of Satan. Adam partook of the fruit just as Eve did. But there is a difference. Adam willfully, knowingly, and actively sinned in rebellion in countless ways. But Eve was deceived. She was deceived by cunning words and appetizing appearances. And then the next misconception that I want to address is I know there are some who appeal to this verse saying that women are more uh, gullible and easily deceived than men. And I don't necessarily think that that's true. I think there's some truth to it, but it is not necessarily true. There is a natural tendency in women to be deceived and to give in to the desire to usurp authority over men. That much is clear from the curse. And friends, you must all be aware of where your tendencies and shortcomings may come to light in order to be ready and on guard to fight against those sinful desires and not give a leg to Satan's wicked schemes to defile the purity of Christ's church. Now, if we stop here, this has been a, a good passage. We see what the Lord has spoken concerning these things, but it can, if we stop here, it can almost feel kind of bleak. It can almost seem as though there is no way for women to serve the church. And I think it's important to reiterate the vital importance of the task that is given to women to teach the younger generations. But I also want to tell you that your kindred, your sisterhood, is the line by which all blessings come. Paul continues on with verse 15, Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if she continue in faith and charity and holiness and sobriety. 
Brothers and sisters, I stand before you today as one who has been saved because of childbearing. Genesis 3.15 tells us of the promise of the seed to come that would crush the serpent's head. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Friends, the seed has come and His name is Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. God chose a woman to do what no man could ever do. And that is bear the Son of God. One writer states, So then, even if certain roles are not open to women, and even if they are tempted to resent their position, they and we must never forget that we all, what we all owe to a woman. If Mary had not given birth to the Christ child, there would have been no salvation for anybody. No greater honor has ever been given to a woman than in the calling of Mary to be the mother of the Savior of the world. But there is a condition upon being saved in childbearing. If she continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Our salvation is by childbearing. And it comes by faith and charity and holiness and sobriety. Now, do not hear me say that we work for our salvation. I've already said that this is not the case. We are saved by faith alone. Our justification is by faith. This is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. We are justified by faith alone. But I'm here, you to, I'm here today to tell you, brothers and sisters, that there is a holiness without which no man will see. Lord. So how are women saved in childbearing? They're saved by faith in the One who was born. The One who clothes us in His righteousness and holiness and by whose Spirit we gain sobriety of the heart. Matthew Henry writes, but it is a word of comfort that those who continue in sobriety shall be saved in childbearing or with childbearing. The Messiah who was born of a woman should break the serpent's head or the sentence which they are under for sin shall be no bar to their acceptance with Christ if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Friends, the salvation that comes by childbearing is Christ. So when the world around us screams that we are bigots, that our view of women is that of second-class citizens, that we hate equality, you must stand firm. Stand firm against the attacks of the culture and hold fast to the faith which is proclaimed in the Word of God. We cannot compromise on this issue 
in order to be relevant. We must adhere to the Word of God and call this world to repentance. Brothers, encourage the women in the church to adorn themselves with good works and to learn in silence and submission in order to then turn around and teach in, in the responsibility that God has given them. And sisters, encourage the men to be in the Word, bathing in the Word in order to rightly divide it, equipping the saints for every good deed. And all of you, most importantly, Pray diligently. Pray diligently that we would maintain our stand in these truths. That we would not compromise. That we would hold fast to this faith. Pray that the Lord would give the women in our congregation quiet and submissive hearts. That the Lord would give the men in our congregation an understanding of how to properly lead in the ways in which the Lord has called you to. Friends, you must pray diligently. Because without prayer, we can expect no change in action or power in our teaching. All things must be saturated in prayer if there is to ever be any hope of effectiveness. The Spirit must guide and empower us for our work to have any meaning. Brothers and sisters, if we desire to rightly live in our God-ordained roles as men and women, then we must. We must be a people of prayer. So let us pray. O Lord, we come unto Thee. And we are thankful that from the beginning Thou hast made us male and female. That there is no confusion of the genders. And that from the beginning Thou hast made us with our proper positions. With man as the head with woman given as a help meet for us. O oh Lord, we ask that we would never be tempted to subvert these roles. Lord, protect the women in our congregation from the desire to usurp authority over the men. Lord, protect the men who are in leadership here among us from lording over the congregation. But that in our leadership, it would be done in love. Oh Lord, continue to equip us, calling us to be men and women of the Word. 
men and women of the truth, men and women of prayer, men and women of the church. O Lord, we trust that these things which Thou hast revealed in Thy Word, that they are perfect and they are true. And no matter what we may feel, no matter what the culture may scream at us, and no matter what takes place even within the church, we can stand firm and stand fast on this truth. And we thank Thee for that, O Lord. Lord, continue to apply this Word to our hearts and continue to bless us as we continue to praise Thy name this Lord's Day. So be with us through the remainder of our worship together. In this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.